Our scripture comes to us this morning from Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it is, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Morning, Whitefields. Good to be with you again today. I always enjoy, I always look forward to Sunday. So we are studying through the book of Genesis. Um, You know what? I have the wrong notes opened up. All right. Should be good here. All right, here we go. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we've gathered here in your name, Lord, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we've come to honor you. Lord, we've come to sit at your feet and hear from you. We've come to, Lord, pour out praise and thanksgiving to you. Lord, we ask that as we open up your word, Lord, this would be a continuation of our lifestyle of worship. Lord, this would be a continuation of our our worship and our honoring of you this morning. Lord, we come to you and we desire to have open hearts, Lord, open ears and open hearts that can hear what you are speaking to us, that can receive what you're speaking to us, and and put it into practice in our lives. So, Lord, we give you... um, authority in this room today. Lord, it's already yours, but we recognize it, and we just ask that you would speak to us, and let us, let our hearts be good soil that receives the seed of your word, Lord, and bears much fruit for your glory, for your name's sake, and Lord, for all that you desire to do in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis. So if you got your Bibles, we didn't read the text that we're going to study for our reading today, but I really wanted to read that section from Romans because really that is the heart of what we're going to read today in Genesis. So if you got your Bibles, what I'd ask you to do is open them up and follow along with me in Genesis chapter 33 and 34. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with when Pastor Jeff was sharing it with us about the idea of wrestling with God and, and how that applies to our lives. Today, as we pick up in 33 and 34, the title of our teaching today is Vengeance is Mine. 
And uh, our text today, we're going to be looking at two stories. And the, the main issues we're faced with in both of these stories are the issues of offense and anger and revenge. And here's how we're going to break this down. First, we're going to talk about the power of humility. Then we're going to talk about the propriety of anger. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about the propitiation of God. Um, If you remember where we left off in Genesis, we're reading about a man named Jacob. We've been studying his life for for a couple weeks now. Now, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, right? He's part of the family line from which will come the nation of Israel and eventually will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Now, Jacob has a twin brother named Esau, and they are not on speaking terms. In fact, they haven't even seen each other for 20 years. They're estranged from each other. Because 20 years before this event here, Esau tried to steal a blessing from Jacob. But Jacob found out about what Esau was trying to do, and he foiled his plan in a deceitful way, and he stole back that which was actually rightfully his in the first place. So Jacob got the blessing that was really something that was belonging to him. But because of how he went about it, his brother Esau got so angry at him that he determined that he's going to murder him. So in order to not get murdered, Jacob runs away. He runs away 550 miles away to Mesopotamia to where his mom's relatives live. And as Jacob is running away from God, God shows up in his life, God speaks to him, God reveals himself to Jacob, and at that point we see that Jacob comes to real living faith in God. In our terminology today, we'd say that he got saved, he got born again, he comes into a a real, sincere, dynamic relationship with the living God. He had believed in God up until this point, as in, he believed that God existed, he knew about God, but he did not yet have a relationship with God up until this point. And at that point, his faith becomes his own. God is no longer the God of his parents and his grandparents, but now this is his God. This is the God that he walks with. He becomes a worshiper of God. He makes a commitment to God that he will walk with him and serve him all the days of his life. So Jacob, we see at that point, is now a believer. But as a new believer, as is so true of many of us as well, uh, when we come to this understanding, we come to faith in God, our character isn't always what it could be. It isn't always what it should be. Our theology isn't isn't always, you know, already set up and set in place. So God begins to work at that point on Jacob's theology and on his character, forming him into the person God wants him to be. And that's how it happens with you and I as well. God accepts us just as we are. But then he takes us and he places his spirit within within us. And he begins to do a work of transformation. A work of sanctification. Transforming us. Getting rid of the sin and folly and the bad theology and thinking that we have. And by his spirit within us, he forms us into the image of Christ. So we see Jacob... He, he's a believer now, and then he goes off to Haran in Mesopotamia, where his mom's family lives. And he spends 20 years there. 20 years and two wives and a bunch of kids later, here's what we see. Jacob decides it's time to go back home. He's been working for his uncle Laban, who also happens to be his father-in-law, and he's also a very shady character. He's a dodgy guy. In fact, he is really the spitting image of who Jacob was before God got a hold of Jacob's heart and began to transform him into a different person. 
He is a deceitful, dishonest guy, always looking to benefit himself, even at the expense of other people. So Jacob's had enough of this. He finally decides, I got to get away from Laban. I got to just go back home. That's the only other place I can go. And plus, God told me that he wants to give me that land as my inheritance. It's time for me to step out and walk in faith and obedience. I'm going back home. So on his way home, he remembers something. Oh yeah, the reason I haven't been home in 20 years is because I have a twin brother who wants to murder me. So he's on his way and, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of concerned about this. And as they're traveling, Jacob's worst nightmare comes true. A messenger comes to tell him, hey, just to let you know, your brother Esau, he's coming to get you. And he's got 400 guys with him. And they're just going to wipe you guys out. So Jacob's very nervous. We talked about that last week. We talked about how in his nervousness, in his worry, he turned to God. So here's where we pick up in chapter 33 from verse 1. Follow along if you've got your Bible. It says this, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men with him. This is the thing that Jacob has been afraid of happening for 20 years, and now it's all coming down right here. Jacob sees him coming, and he says, well, this is either going to be really bad or really good. Let's find out what happens. It says this, So Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So what does Jacob do? He lines up his wives and kids in order of importance, which really hurts if you're in the front, right? You're like, Dad... Come on, I guess I, see, I guess I see where I stand in your eyes. Ouch, you know? Um, so his idea behind this is, you know, he's got 400 guys coming to murder his family. His idea is this. He wants to make sure that he gives people the best chance of survival that he can. And again, yeah, it's a bummer if you're in the front there. Because uh, he obviously is putting his favorite kids in the back. Favoritism was a problem in Jacob's family. You remember that with Esau. It's going to be a problem with his kids, if you know the story of Joseph. Not a good thing. So this is what he does. Uh, let's check out what happens in verse 4. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Well, that probably isn't what Jacob was expecting to happen, is it? He's expecting that this guy's going to come and take him down, and the guy comes and hugs him. And they just weep, and they, they uh, what says he fell on his neck? I guess that's a good thing in the Bible. Uh, this could have easily been a story of revenge, right? This, this started out as a story of retaliation, as re, of revenge. Jacob fully expected that his brother is coming to meet him with 400 men because he wants revenge for the time when Jacob conned him 20 years ago. Now Esau indeed felt offended by what Jacob did to him. And at one point in his life, he did, in fact, want revenge and retaliation. But instead of ending up as a story of revenge, this ends up as a story of reconciliation. And that's an important thing for us to take note of. And it brings us to the first of our three points that we're going to talk about today. The power of humility. Now, I, I have to admit to you that, uh, that when I was first thinking about this text, you know, I'm thinking, well, what am I, you know, what is that story about? And I was thinking about it. And my first inclination was to think and assume that Jacob was being a coward. 
I mean, he's been a coward in the past. He's always looking out for number one. And that was my first inclination here, is to think Jacob is, he's probably being a coward here. But the more I looked at the story, actually my attitude towards Jacob and his actions here changed. I I don't actually see him being a coward here. Now, I, I see him doing something that he's going above and beyond the call of duty in order to reconcile a broken relationship. Notice Jacob actually does a a number of noteworthy things in this story. The first noteworthy thing that Jacob does is he leads. Notice that. Here we see a man who is no longer hiding behind the women and children, saying, yeah, take them out, and then, you know, if, if he came to kill me, I'll just run away. He's not hiding behind these people anymore. He goes out in front. He leads his family. He puts himself out there to take responsibility and face the consequences for what he did in his past. The next noteworthy thing that Jacob does here is he humbles himself. And humility is a very powerful thing. In fact, humility is something which can be completely disarming, right? When you approach someone who you are at odds with, who you have tension with, let me tell you, humility is powerful because humility can be completely disarming. It can completely diffuse tension. Proverbs 15 verse 1, it says this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath. Jacob humbles himself. He bows to the ground seven times when approaching Esau. He refers to him as my Lord. See, these are signs of respect. These are signs of humility. Now, does Esau deserve that kind of respect from Jacob? Probably not, right? Last time they saw each other, Esau was trying to rip Jacob off, and then he was trying to murder him, right? Does he deserve respect? Probably not. But Jacob shows Esau respect and humility, even though Esau probably doesn't deserve it. Another noteworthy thing that Jacob does here is he prepares for the worst. He hopes for the best and he prepares for the worst. He's doing everything he can to seek reconciliation, but he prepares for the worst because he's not naive. He knows that sometimes, no matter how much you may want it to happen, reconciliation is not always possible. And here's why, because... In order for forgiveness to take place, you only need one willing party, right? You only need one person to say, I forgive you. But in order for reconciliation to to take place, you actually need two willing parties. That's why it's difficult. That's why in the text we read today in Romans 12, it says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. See, sin kills intimacy. We see that all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. When Adam and Eve sin against each other, what happens? Immediately, it kills their intimacy with God. And you know what else happens? It kills their intimacy with each other. They begin covering themselves up. They begin hiding from each other. They begin keeping secrets. And so what we see is this. Jacob and Esau sinned against each other. Both of them sinned. And it killed their relationship. It killed their intimacy as brothers. Animosity came between them. Tension and strife. And the same is true today, right? Sin kills intimacy. It kills intimacy between friends. It kills intimacy between spouses, between coworkers, all the way down the line. But we need to be people, as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who've been redeemed by his blood, we must be people who are on a mission of reconciliation. 
We're on a mission to see people reconciled with God, and we're also on a mission to see our relationships reconciled, to see other people's relationships reconciled. And why? Why is reconciliation important? Because God thinks reconciliation is important. Because God sought reconciliation with us. Because sin creates division and strife, but reconciliation is only possible. It's only possible through forgiveness and humility. And forgiveness, humility, and reconciliation, these are all reflections of what? They're reflections of the gospel. They're aspects of the gospel. They're reflections of what God has done for us in Christ. That's why Ephesians chapter 4, in God's word, it says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Just as you've been forgiven, reflect that. Reflect it with your actions. Reflect that gospel as you live your life by doing gospel things, forgiving, humbling yourself, reconciling. But again, remember this. Jacob humbled himself and sought reconciliation with his brother, but he also prepared for the worst. He had a plan for how to protect as many people in his family as possible should Esau be coming to exact revenge on him. Now, I think that that's actually wise. As you seek reconciliation with people, sometimes you need to to prepare for the worst. You might need to meet them in a public place. You might need to meet with them with someone else present. Because although you may have forgiven them, they may not want to forgive you. They may not want to reconcile. So Jacob acts wisely. He, he seeks reconciliation, but at the same time, he prepares for the worst. He's not naive. There are two more noteworthy things that, Je- that Jacob does in this section in regard to reconciliation. The, all of these things shed light on this topic that I'm mentioning, which is the power of humility. The first is this. Not only does Jacob seek reconciliation, but he seeks to make restitution. Check this out in verses 8 through 11. It says, Esau says, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Now, that company that he's talking about, it refers to back in chapter 32, where Jacob sent all these animals as a gift, you know, all this livestock and, and all this stuff, as a gift to appease Esau. And Jacob answers, I sent this to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob says, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. That's, that's interesting, right? He says, seeing you, the way that you are towards me, it reminds me of the way that God was towards me. Gracious, merciful, forgiving. And he says this, here's really the key. He says, please accept my blessing that's brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough, that's he urged him and he took it. And notice that phrase there in that last part. He says, please accept my blessing. Well, that's interesting language considering the root of their conflict to begin with, right? The whole reason they're at odds with each other is because 20 years ago, there was a conflict over what? Over a blessing, For 20 years, they've been at odds. Part of that blessing that Esau lost out on was the greater portion of the inheritance. It was monetary. It was livestock. It was wealth. So what does Jacob do? He says, well, here, have all this stuff. Take it. Let it be restitution. 
I don't think he owes this to Esau. Remember, that blessing was rightfully his. But the point is this. Jacob is going above and beyond in order to be reconciled to his brother. And, and part of that is that he makes restitution. You know, so many people are willing to say, I'm sorry. But a lot fewer people are willing to make right the wrong that they've done. If you've stolen money, pay it back. That's restitution. If you borrowed somebody's car and you wrecked it, then you get it fixed. If you've done something, don't just say, I'm sorry, but go make restitution. And the last noteworthy thing that Jacob does that I'd like to point out is this. He draws boundaries. Check out verses 12 through 16. Esau in this section, he essentially says, hey, little brother, we're cool now. So no hard feelings about the past. Why don't you guys come live with me? You know, I have this, you know, awesome setup down in this town called Seir. I've got a nice place. We can be one big happy family. You guys just move into my compound. You know, we'll hang out. We'll eat breakfast together every day. Jacob says, uh, thanks, but no thanks. You know, you guys go ahead. We're, we're cool. We're, we're, we're going to settle somewhere else. And the point is this. Even though Jacob and Esau are now reconciled, Jacob doesn't automatically trust Esau. He draws some boundaries in their relationship. He says, it's good that we're reconciled, but I don't think it's a good idea for us to live together. Right? You know, some, something that many people, and oftentimes Christians too, they don't understand is that forgiveness and trust are two different things. Those are two separate things. You know, forgiveness and reconciliation, that can happen in a moment. But trust is something which has to be built over time. You know, Jacob hasn't seen Esau for 20 years. Last time he saw him, Esau was trying to rip him off and murder him. He, he doesn't know yet if he can trust this man. He just saw him like five minutes ago, you know, for the first time in 20 years. He needs some boundaries in this relationship. You know, sometimes you hear Christians say things like, well, you said that you forgive me, so why are you so distant still? You're supposed to forgive and forget, all right? You know, I said I'm sorry. Now let's just go back to how things were before. You know, we just have to just forget it and go back to the way things were. No, trust and intimacy are things that are built and developed over time. They can be lost in a moment. And then you have to work hard to build them up and develop them again. And it's actually a lot harder to regain trust and intimacy once you've lost it. Some people have a hard time accepting that. It seems to me Esau has a hard time grasping this. You may have heard me mention before about a guy that we had in our church in Hungary who was a convicted child molester. And, and he used to say all the time, he used to say, if God has forgiven me for what I did, then why aren't people in the church able to just treat me like everybody else? I've paid my dues. I've done my time. Why are there all these boundaries set up around me? Like that he couldn't work with youth and he couldn't work with children and, and we wanted to know where he was going and what he was doing. The reason is this, because forgiveness and trust are two separate issues. And boundaries are actually the foundation for healthy relationships. All relationships have boundaries. So Jacob and Esau, they reconcile, but Jacob draws some boundaries in their relationship. Jacob's a believer now. He wants to lead his family in the ways of the Lord. We're going to see that, we're going to see that he does exactly that in the next couple of verses. You know, living with Esau would make that hard. Maybe Esau would want to be the head of the family if they go and live at his place down in Seir. 
You know, and Jacob knows that God has called him to lead his family. He's called him to lead his family in God's ways. So he says that's just not something that he can do. That's a boundary he has to draw. So in this story, what do we see? We see the power of humility. Now, we can't know this for sure, beyond the shadow of a doubt, what the intentions of Esau were when he came to meet Jacob, accompanied with 400 men. But it's my belief from the text that Esau was originally setting out with all these guys to exact revenge on Jacob. You know, why else would you bring a posse of 400 guys with you, right? Why else would this messenger come and warn Jacob and tell him, hey man, it's coming down, this is, this is bad? Because probably these guys had weapons. I imagine if they were carrying flowers and apple pies to welcome Jacob back to home, then the messenger would have told him, hey, there's all these guys coming, but they're just coming to say hi and, you know, give you some food and, and some flowers and welcome you back. No, I imagine that the reason why Jacob was so worried was because he knew that Esau was coming to get him. And I think that when Esau set out, that was his plan. But here's what I think. I think that Esau's heart changed towards Jacob when he saw Jacob's humility. When he sees this gift of restitution coming his way. When he sees Jacob coming out front and bowing before him and, and humbling himself. I think that was, I think it was Jacob's humility that changed Esau's uh, intentions. And I would encourage all of you here today to be people who follow that example. You can diffuse hostility with humility. Be a person who seeks reconciliation as much as it depends on you. A person who's humble, humbles yourself and, and is willing to forgive because God in Christ has forgiven you and reconciled you to himself. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So notice verses 18 through 20. Esau returns to Seir, but Jacob and his family move to the city of Shechem. Now why Shechem? Well here, here's a we don't know exactly why, but I'll tell you what we do know about Shechem. We know this. Shechem is in the promised land. That's, that's important. That's significant. And Shechem is the first place in the promised land that Abraham built an altar to God. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. Abraham entered the promised land. The first place he built an altar was at the city of Shechem. And what that does is it reflects for us how Jacob has come to be in his walk with God. How far he's come. How great a work that God has done in his heart. He's now a man who walks with God. He's now a man who worships God. That's important to him. He desires to dwell in the promised land. The land that God has promised to give to him and his descendants as, a, as part of the promise to Abraham. He's walking by faith now in accordance with the promise of God. And he returns to the place where God first appeared to Abraham in the promised land. And he settles down there. And he builds an altar, a place of worship for his household and for all people who would join them in worshiping the true and living God. But notice this. Even though Jacob's walking by faith, even though he's leading his family and worshiping God, what we see in the next chapter is that his family is not immune to tragedy. His family is not immune to the effects of sin just because he's doing some things right. Look at what happens in chapter 24. Jacob has a lot of sons. He also has a daughter. Her name is Dinah. Dinah means justice. Now that is going to be very ironic actually because of what happens in chapter 34. Dinah is probably a teenage girl. Follow along in the text if you got it. I'm just going to kind of 
sum it up here. Dinah is, is probably a teenage girl at this point. She's the daughter of Jacob. And she goes out on the town with some of her girlfriends one night there in Shechem. And she meets a guy. He is actually the son of the prince, the political leader there. And what happens? This guy rapes her. And not only does he rape her, but he, he kind of takes her captive and locks her up in his house and won't let her go. And to top that off, the guy, after he does this to her, after he defiles her, he says that he's fallen in love with her, and now he wants to marry her. So news gets back to Jacob that the son of the prince has defiled his daughter, has done something which ought not to be done, is how the text says. And he's holding her captive in his house. But Jacob doesn't do anything. And that's the issue here. That's the problem. Jacob does nothing. In fact, he doesn't even tell his sons. He keeps it a secret from his sons because he knows that his sons are going to be upset if they hear this. So the prince and his son, they come to talk to Jacob and his sons about Dinah. And they say, look, we've got Dinah and we want to pay you for her. We want to keep her. My son wants to marry her. In fact, what if you guys just joined your family to our clan? We can intermarry. We'll become one people. We'll share overhead. It'll be better for everyone. But Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, how do they respond to that? They are angry. They are very angry. And they come up with a plan. And they, they tell this prince and his son, they say, okay, we'll give you Dinah to be the wife of your son. And even, you know what, we'll even join your clan. But we got one requirement, one request. We request that all of you guys be circumcised. All the men in Shechem, you got to get circumcised. So the prince and his dad, they, or the prince and his son, they think about this. They say, yeah, that sounds fair. So they, uh, they present it to the whole city. They go to the gate of the city and they say, all right, here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to have to get circumcised, but it's going to be better for us because we're going to get all their stuff, is actually. You see that their motives aren't pure. So the men of Shechem get circumcised, all on the same day, apparently. And while they're recovering, let's just say they weren't very nimble. They weren't very agile. It says that they were laying on the beds in pain, right? And in comes Simon and Simeon and Levi, the, the sons of Jacob, Dinah's brothers, and they just melee everybody in town. Like, they just wipe out the whole town. They kill everybody. They rescue their sister from the prince's house. They plunder the goods. And then Jacob finds out about what's happened. And what does Jacob do? What's his response? Here's his response. He's angry. But guess who he's angry at? He's angry at his sons. Rather than being angry at the people who defiled his daughter, he's angry at his sons. But he says, you have made me, you know, a stench to the people around here. In other words, the people who live in this area, they aren't going to like me anymore. You've messed me up politically in this region. And the sons respond. They say, should we allow someone to treat our sister like a prostitute? In other words, they're saying, Dad, what about Dinah? Aren't you concerned about Dinah? Aren't you concerned about her dignity, her honor? Why are you only concerned about what people will think about you? Why are you only concerned about your political relationships? Aren't you concerned about our sister? Now, this is one of those chapters that preachers usually like to skip over, right? This is like one of those ones that makes everybody pretty uncomfortable because we're talking about rape, circumcision, mass murder, Pretty much nothing good happens in this chapter. So as a preacher, what are you supposed to do with a text like this, right? But again, notice how it fits into the bigger picture of what we're talking about. Chapters 33 and 34, they're dealing with two stories of offense 
anger and revenge. Both of the stories are about that. They end up in different ways, but they're both about that. In the first story, we see how Esau's desire for revenge was diffused by the humility of Jacob. But in this story, now it's Jacob's daughter. It's Jacob's family who sinned against. It's Jacob's sons, Dinah's brother, who get angry and they take revenge on the city of Shechem. They kill people. They plunder the city. And herein we meet our second point, and that is this, the propriety of anger. The propriety of anger. Here's what I want you to notice from this chapter. Dinah was raped. This is tragic. This is sad. This is every father's worst nightmare. Absolutely. But the striking thing in this chapter, the thing which causes us to be concerned and worried and say, why, that's not right, is this. Jacob, Dinah's dad, does nothing. The brothers get angry and they do something, but Jacob, he doesn't do anything. What the boys do is wrong. They lie, they murder, but what Jacob does is also wrong. His sin is the sin of omission. Sin isn't just what you do. Sometimes sin is what you don't do when you should do something. Jacob does nothing to get his daughter back from these guys who are holding her captive. In fact, he even tries to hide the issue from his sons because he's afraid of what they'll do. Now, here's what I mean by the phrase, the propriety of anger. I mean this, that in some cases, it is right to be angry. In some cases, it would actually be wrong not to be angry. Now, as Christians, a lot of times, you know, the message that comes across is, you know, now don't be angry because anger is a negative emotion, so make sure you you know, suppress that. But anger isn't always a negative emotion. There, there are some things that should make us angry. There, there are some times when anger is actually required. If my daughter was raped, I'm going to tell you, I would be very angry. And that is why Jacob's response is so shocking. Not only to us, it was shocking to his own sons. They said, Dad, don't you care about our sister? Dad, doesn't this make you upset? Doesn't it make you the least bit angry? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes an interesting statement. He says this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now that's actually an imperative, right? That's a command. Be angry. It's saying, sometimes you need to get angry. He's not saying, well, anger is bad, so you should try to avoid it. But, you know, if you do get angry, try not to sin. No, he's actually saying get angry when it's appropriate to be angry. But in your anger, don't sin. You know, anger is something which is characteristic of God. There were times when Jesus was angry. Anger is not a bad thing, but the, the thing we have to ask is, number one, why are we angry? And number two, what are we angry at? And also, what do we do with that anger? See, anger is an emotion. And if you think about this, emotions, like most things, aren't bad in and of themselves. The problem is rather misdirected emotion and unbridled emotion. So you could put it this way, there aren't bad emotions, there are only emotions gone bad, right? Even hatred, we, we tend to think of that as a bad emotion, but God's word says that God hates sin. God hates the works of unrighteousness. God hates injustice. That means that there are some things that it's right to hate. There are some things that God hates. God hates injustice. See, hatred by itself isn't the problem. The problem is when hatred is misdirected, when hatred is unbridled, when it's directed at the wrong thing, when, when you react in the wrong way. 
Martin Luther King said this about his, his movement of nonviolence, and I think this fully applies here. Martin Luther King said this, nonviolence is aggressive towards problems, not people. Nonviolence is aggressive towards problems, not people. You see, here's the deal. Anger and aggression are not bad things in themselves. They become bad things when they're directed against people and not problems. Anger can be defined in this way. Energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. I'll say that again. Anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. And if you see someone being oppressed, if you see someone being abused or mistreated or taken advantage of, if you see justice being trampled on, and it doesn't make you angry, then in fact, you're not like God. God gets angry in response to sin. Why? Because God is good. In fact, the more loving you are, the more angry you will be towards something that needs to be defended. You know, Jacob as a father, he's been entrusted with the care of his daughter. But rather than defending her, his failure here is that he does nothing. He suppresses his anger. He doesn't do anything. And so his boys step up and do something in in righteous anger, but it's totally misdirected. What they do in their anger is totally wrong. You know, righteous anger is something which is meant to be used. It's something which is given by God as a motivating factor, you know? Something which is... uh, you know, it needs to be directed appropriately. That's the point. Anger is appropriately directed when it attacks something that is wrong. Problems, not people. Righteous anger doesn't attack people. It attacks problems. So, so anger is something, uh, sometimes anger is the most appropriate response we can have. But anger is also easily misused and misdirected. And oftentimes, as we all know, anger is not righteous anger. Sometimes our anger is not righteous anger. Sometimes it's selfish anger, right? Sometimes we're trying to protect ourselves. Sometimes we're trying to protect our ego. So we need to examine ourselves and our motivations. We have to ask ourselves, why am I angry? What am I angry at? And then, what am I going to do? But then look at this. Think about this with me. What then should these boys have done? Their sister's been raped. Should they just do nothing? And they should just do nothing to avenge the wrong that's been done to their sister? Her name is Dinah. It means justice. But a terrible injustice has been done to her. And these boys feel that if they do not do something to avenge her, then justice will not be done. And that brings us to our third and final point, and that is this, the propitiation of God. The propitiation of God. What God's word tells us, we read it today in our scripture reading, in Paul's letter to the Romans, it says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, how does that all fit together? God's word instructs us in this way, that we should never avenge ourselves. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, some people find that idea disturbing, right? But actually, I think that in that, you need to see that this is actually a very comforting thing. There's a Croatian theologian who is now a professor at Yale University. His name is Miroslav Volf. He's really a big deal over in Europe. Um, But, you know, the thing about Miroslav Volf is that he lived through the war in Yugoslavia. 
You know, they're the, one of the worst parts of the war was right on the border of the Danube where, the, where Croatia meets Serbia. There's a city there called Vukovar, which is very close to the city of Osijek, which is where uh, Miroslav Wolf is from. So he lived in like the heart of the shelling and bombing that went on in the Yugoslav War. And, uh, and he wrote this uh, paper about viol- human violence and divine vengeance. And, and I find this very interesting. Listen to what he said. Just one line. He said this. The reason violence flourishes today is because of the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. I'll say that one more time. Let it sink in. The reason why violence flourishes today is because of the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. What he's saying is this. The reason why people do what these boys did in our story, that they feel that they need to exact revenge, they need to avenge a wrong, is because people do not believe that God will avenge them. They believe that if they don't avenge themselves, then injustice will happen. Then justice has not been done. And that's why the message of the Bible that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, that is actually very comforting. Because what it means is that that is actually something which can break a cycle of violence. Because we're able to say, I I do not need to avenge myself. God will take care of it. Because what that means is that God is not only a loving father, he is a loving father, but he's also a holy and righteous judge. And that means that when you and I are offended, when people sin against us, when we sin against others, God promises to deal with those sins rightly and justly. It won't just be swept under the carpet. It won't just be ignored. It won't be forgotten. He's the God who sees and he's the judge of the earth. And it's not my job to dispense judgment. It's his job. I do not need to avenge myself or anyone else. I can entrust that to him. And that's a very freeing thing to know that. If you read through the Psalms, I was reading through the Psalms uh, this week, reading through the Psalms, you know, 90 through 100, and what you find is that the psalmist, oftentimes, it's David, he says, he talks about how he has been the victim of so much injustice and unfairness, but what does he take comfort in? He takes comfort in the knowledge that God sees what happened to him, and God will see that justice is served. But here's where I want to end up. Here's the gospel. Here's how the gospel comes into all of this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 2 says this, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. Do you know what the word propitiation means? It means the appeasement of anger. The appeasement of anger. And so here's where this all comes full circle, right? We've been talking about what? Offense. We've been talking about anger. We've been talking about vengeance. Now, how should we respond when we are offended? How should we respond when we've offended others? What should our attitude be towards anger? What should our attitude be towards vengeance? And this is what the gospel says. That Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for all the sins of the world. That means that God's righteous wrath, God's righteous anger against sin and wrong, the vengeance that's rightly deserved by those who have sinned and offended you, the vengeance that you in fact deserve because you have wronged other people, it was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus' suffering on the cross, it was more than just physical suffering. It was the weight of the sin of the whole world and the righteous wrath of God, the vengeance of God was poured out upon him.
He became the propitiation for our sins so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sins, the punishment that we deserve for the wrongs that we've done, he took it all upon himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to him, so we could be born again to new life in him, everlasting life. And that not only means that you can have eternal life, but it means this too. It means that you can forgive those who've sinned against you, knowing with full knowledge that God isn't just sweeping things under the floor, but that God, or under the carpet, but that God has in fact dealt with sin fully and justly in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, you can't avenge something which has already been avenged, right? By God. So you're free. That frees you up to forgive others their sins against you. It frees you up to know that you are forgiven. Your sins have been dealt with in Christ on the cross. That should be a glorious and freeing knowledge. And I hope it is for you today. I hope you let that sink in. God's word says this, and I'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you made for us. Lord, we thank you that you took upon yourself the wrath of God. The pro- you became the propitiation for our sins. And Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that our debt is paid. That there's nothing that needs to be avenged. And Lord, thank you that that frees us up that we don't need to avenge ourselves. We can know, Lord, that you have taken care of it in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the promise of eternal life in you. We thank you for the promise of new life. Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Help us to do the things that your word speaks of for your glory, for your name's sake, and for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen.